All right. I will. Uh, right. I'll talk to you guys in a little bit. Bye, All buddy. Right. Bye. Bye. Oh, I said bye and then I didn't leave. <laughs> you did the is, awkward thing awkward. where like we this left is, uh, the restaurant and are walking the same direction now. <laughs> right. This is. This is gonna, I have a feeling this is going to be my day today. <laughs> it's just not completely there. Okay, I'm going to try again. Bye. Okay. Bye. Welcome to the Fascinating Book Club, a special installment of the Fascinating Podcast. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I'm Kathy Kong. Fascinating Book Club is a chance for us to dive deeper into a book we love, or in this case, a series we love, with the author who created it. Today, we are speaking with Adrian Tachowski about his epic science fiction fantasy. It used to be a trilogy until we got corrected on air, folks. The Children of Time <laughs> series. Uh, yeah, breaking news. Adrian confirms this probably is not just going to be a trilogy. So before we meet with Adrian, we're going to talk a little bit about these books. So Kathy, I think you have read them the most recently. Yeah. How do, how have you pitched these to many people since you've started them? Um, not yet. Not yet. I haven't had an opportunity to interact with very many people. <laughs> so how are you going to pitch this? this? Someone is, someone's like, Oh, what have you been reading? Kathy? You're going to say, I, I am <laughs> going to say, Hey, have you ever thought about how spiders and octopuses think and would act in a time of war. That's, that's how I'm going to pitch it. What do you think? I love it. Yeah? Uh, yeah, the, I, I affectionately call these books the spider books. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so listeners, these are space opera, so you, you need to think far future. Uh, and essentially, the short, short, short version is we get to meet various cultures of evolved animal societies. So spider societies, octopus societies, and a few others. And they have, they're not humanoid, so they're not like half human, half spider, or half human, half octopus or something. It's literally, there. there is a human created, like, nanovirus that accelerates evolution in these species. So we get to see what a fully developed spider civilization would look like, octopus civilization would look like. Uh, and as Kathy said, there's a little bit of conflict in these books too. So uh, yeah, they're, they're incredible, I think. Yeah, and I, I think it challenges as this type of story does to think about understanding and looking critically at our own civilization and the assumption that other cultures are not as civilized using, you know, spiders and octopuses, which is fascinating because, again, we assume because we can stomp on spiders and eat octopuses that we are more evolved without critically looking at how these creatures actually function in their own societies and interact with other animals in the animal kingdom. So I, I am quite fascinated and also a little still creeped out. <laughs> Let's just be honest. I uh, keep hearing in my mind, we're going on an adventure. <laughs> 
Um, did you find yourself in Children of Time a little bit bored with the humans and anxious to get back to the spider civilization? Yes. Um, I was... So, and I what I loved about the spider civilization, right, is a matriarchal society. <laughs> and... <laughs> I know you're so surprised I'm, by I'm, that. Wow. I just about spit out my coffee in shock listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, so even kind of seeing that depicted and how there, you know, there are plus and minuses to that. And it's not perfect, right? So it's understanding the answer to patriarchy is not matriarchy. <laughs> and um, so I did enjoy that. And and yes, how boring humans are, in part because I think I understand humans. I don't understand or have thought about what it would look like to interact with spiders as equals. Yeah. So listeners, one of my, just to give you, if you have not read these books, just to give you a little bit of a taste. Uh, in the first book, when humans encounter the spider civilization for the first time, uh, the spiders communicate through a combination of uh, sign language with their mandibles and then also uh, a, what we call like Morse code or something like that, like tapping out messages on their webs. So they communicate with, uh, again, sign and vibration, right? And when the humans first come, of course, they don't recognize that the spiders are talking to them by tapping their feet and waving their little mandibles. And the spiders are uh, so confused that any species would use its food hole to talk. Right? Like, that's just, that's just completely... They're like, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And so, like, there's, like, a, there's like a, an essential inability to not only communicate, but even to recognize that the other species is trying to communicate, right? To even, even recognize intelligence, uh, or, or culture. Right. Um, and I, I think obviously there's some, uh, like colonialism in the backdrop of that. Uh, but it, it's, it's done in a way that's not preachy or heavy handed. I think it's done in a way that invites reflection and, questions you know yeah um and yeah it i was so excited so we should say uh our producer elliot is the one who suggested we try to reach out to adrian and have him on the show uh i messaged him on twitter as one does and he instantly responded and was like would love to come on this is great let's set it up so elliot thank you so much for uh reminding us to always I just Ask folks if they if they wanted to come. Adrian was so kind to give us his time. Uh, he is a delightful guest, and I felt like we could have probably talked to him for another hour and a half easy. So uh, let's uh, let's hop over to our interview with Adrian Tachovsky. I should say uh, we we mostly avoid spoilers for the final book, and really we don't really do too many spoilers for the second book. Uh, other than the fact that there are octopuses in it. Uh, but yeah, if you want to be totally unspoiled for this series and you have not read them, you should probably read them first. They're delightful. We all heartily recommend them. Uh, but I think even if you have not read this series, if you listen to this interview, you will feel more excited about reading the series than spoiled. Is Would you say that's fair, Kathy? Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Okay. 
So, so let's hop over to our interview with Adrian Tchotsky. Our guest today is Adrian Tchotsky. Adrian, welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. We are so glad to have you on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, now, this feels like a little bit of a silly question, given all of the different kind of books that you read, but we always ask our first-time guests, what's fascinating you like right now in life? Uh, right now in life? Uh, um, I mean, I've got to say, it's, it's, we're going through one of those times where it's hard to find things that fascinate as opposed to just horrify, I suppose. But <laughs> so <laughs> true. Yeah. Yikes. Yep. Yeah, I mean, weird. at the moment, I am absolutely wading through um, sort of chat GPT takes. Uh, I mean, I, I feel that it's kind of equal parts fascinating and horrifying, but there are, uh, if nothing else, the number of commissions I have had recently for, for stories based on kind of extrapolating AI um, has been really quite remarkable. It's I think for good or for good or bad, and I, I'm going to say I, I tend to come down a bit more on the bad side, purely given mm. what it's doing to the creative industries. Um, it's mass. It's just got something that's got hold of people's attention in a way I haven't seen for quite a long time. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen some of the hot takes that are saying it's you know as disruptive as the internet and and things like that. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard to disagree with, yeah, with those kind of takes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I suspect though that, that that's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but um, it, I guess it's it's probably kind of hitting the industry a bit like the McDonald's uh, sort of model of, of 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 fast food did when that when that came out. It's very well, you can have this thing and it'll be of a certain level and it'll be very cheap. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a, a great good. analogy. Wow. Well, I, I suspect it put a lot of fry cooked out of business at the time. So yeah, yeah. Uh, well, our current theory uh, among us is that there are actually four of you that is each constantly writing. So which, which of you do we have the pleasure of speaking with today? <laughs> uh, you, you can have whichever of my personalities you would like. <laughs> Adrian, what what is your writing schedule like? Like you, what did you have three books come out this last year? Um, I think I had two novels and two novellas or thereabouts. It's, it's, it's hard okay. to keep track of because I remember when I write them and then obviously right. the publishing schedule strings them out at all sort of weird times. But yes, I, I get a lot done. I, my writing schedule is really, I write mornings and mm. then do edits and admin and so forth in the afternoons as needs, as needs doing. I'm just... The there isn't exactly a grand secret, but my my writing process is very efficient. So that when I when I finish a first draft, it's generally not too dissimilar to what I'll submit. And I think that's where I make it up. It's not so much writing more words, it's just keeping more of the words that I write. Hmm. Hmm. That makes sense. I am curious though, how many projects you are working on at a time. Like, oh, only, on, honestly, work? only the one. Uh, I'm only ever writing one thing at once. Um, yeah, barring sort of like um, a blog article someone might want me to do or something like that. Very, very small stuff. But I and I write very linearly, uh, barring a few projects which have either gone massively off the rails or are just very oddly structured. <laughs> I will write it as it appears on the page. 
Wow. In, um, for the for the reader, um, mostly because I pl- I plan a lot. I'm very much of that sort of that end of the um, the continuum. I've recently been experimenting with writing books that are a little more freeform, but even there, I've created the world and put a lot of thought into how the world works. So I've got a very solid sort of footing to write from. And I suspect that's where I'm making up a lot of the a lot of the time is just everything slots together on the first pass rather than having to go back and retcon a lot of stuff. That's amazing. So can you tell us about the path from, is this right, zoology to law to space opera? <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's mostly very random. So zoology is a thing I was always interested in. And I did a degree at university, which was zoology psychology, but my, a lot of people say, well, you know, do, did your writing arise out of the degree? And it's very much more that my interests went into the degree and weren't particularly satisfied by it. Um, because you, you know, you, it's, it's a bit of a, it was a bit of a roll of the dice, what you're necessarily going to get in any one course. And in this case, there was, I mean, no one will be terribly surprised to hear there wasn't, enough, there weren't enough spiders in the uh, course material <laughs> to uh, keep me happy. Um, so I came out of that and I had a variety of uh, basically whatever job was going. It was a period when it was, so the, ni- the, ni- the late 90s uh, economy in the UK, not amazing at the time, not a lot of jobs. I ended up getting um, a job in a place called the Legal Aid Board, which was like a government office dealing with um, public funding for law because they were updating their computer system and were just hiring literally everyone off the street because they had to get all of these immense stacks of paper files put on their system um, within a very short time period. And I was there for a couple of years. And then because that opened my eyes to the idea of the legal profession, I got a job as a legal secretary because I had the typing speed because of the writing. And from there, I kind of trained up as a bit of a junior lawyer whilst working on the um, the uh, secretary side of things. And so it wasn't really, I didn't ever really think I want to be a lawyer. It was just the, the door opened at a time when I desperately needed something that paid a bit better than um, sort of punching figures for the legal aid board. And that's what I took. But all, I mean, I guess the important thing is all the time, all the way through this, all through this time, the one thing I wanted to do was writing. And I was, I was at this time writing and submitting and getting rejected and writing and submitted over and over again. What were you writing and submitting and what did you learn in that process for, for listeners who aspire to be writers and look at authors like you and think, oh, that. That could never be me. Well, I um, so I got into the writing game at about 17, 18, mostly through role-playing games. Uh, role-playing games was always my big thing as a teenager. Um, I ran into a set of books called The Dragonlance Chronicles, which were some early, basically, D&D novels. And that sort of bridged the gap and said, look, these are the people who play the games you play, and they have written a book about, basically, a game they played. And this is theoretically a thing you can do. And... I decided that was what I wanted to do, and I was very bad at it to start with. So what I, I mean, it took me about fifteen. Years. So quite, I mean, quite, quite, quite seriously. I, and I was not. I mean, no one, no one is their own best critic. And I, I quite quickly got into the idea that I was writing incredibly good stuff that people were fools for not publishing. And I would basically, I would write a book and I would submit it and it would get rejected. And then I'd write another book and I would write basically about a book a year for fifteen years. And what I learned during that period was basically everything i learned i went from being 
someone who had a lot of ideas because you know let no one tell you ideas are the difficult part of writing um but no actual writing style and writing skill to becoming someone who was writing something of stuff that was of just about publishable quality and i did that through writing a lot and i did that through reading a lot and that is very much i think the slow way of going about things but if you want to if you want to shortcut that you have to be you have to have a number of personal characteristics like being very open to other people criticizing your work which lord knows i wasn't during that <laughs> process it's because my i was i love it <laughs> yeah i mean i was absolutely convinced of my own sort of overwhelming talent and once I got into print, finally, with uh, Empire in Black and Gold, I, of course, went back through this enormous drawer of failed books. And thought, well, obviously, I will get all these books published. These must all be wonderful. And I reread them, and they were not. <laughs> I was able to salvage the two books immediately before Empire in Black and Gold, and they're both now in print. And the one before that was just, I would have had to do so much work on it. And frankly, I'd rather just write something new at that point. So it was a bit of, it was a, bit of a... um it was a bit of a almost like a picture of Dorian Gray moment where you kind of, you know, you, you whip the thing off the picture and find out that, oh, this thing you thought was wonderful, actually, yeah, that was rough. That was really rough <laughs> stuff. And you were submitting that thinking it was thinking it was um, good enough to get in print. <laughs> uh, Adrian, I, I remember those days for myself as well. <laughs> I actually uh, I keep love... my first. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, Jack. it's fine. Go ahead. I was going to say I keep my first screenplay in my closet. Any day I'm feeling really sad about my writing, I pull it out and read it to myself. And I'm like, oh, no, I've gotten much better. <laughs> uh, Adrian, I think uh, Children of Time was my introduction to you. But I think immediately after that book, I went back and read Spiderlight, which for fa uh, listeners who have not read that one is like a tabletop RPG adjacent world where I, and I love this, uh, where a spider is transformed into a humanoid and sent along with the, you know, heroes of the novel on their quest. And the way, the way you wrote how horrifying it would be for a spider to become a humanoid, uh, was just <laughs> such a fun inversion of the ick. I think most of us naturally feel at encountering spiders, you know, even me, like I have, intellectually gotten to the place where I know spiders like kill all the mosquitoes we have down here in Texas and all that kind of stuff. And they're good. And still, when I see one, my immediate reaction is squish it, kill it, burn the house down. Right. Um, so I'm curious, like, what was it about spiders? I mean, was, were they a creature that you've loved forever or were, were you horrified by them and wanted to sort of try to love them? Or what was it about them that these, you know, these two books, I think so masterfully, um, help us sort of see the world through uh, spider eyes, so to speak. So, um, so spiders and for that matter, you know, arthropods in general, so insects, crabs, pretty much anything with that kind of jointed exoskeleton has that's always been my thing since I was very young. I, I mean, like like a lot of honestly, like a lot of people, writers and readers in the business, I was a very disaffected kid, um, and. I had that sort of outsider mentality and what that turned into for me was I will find effectively because I, I, I was very, very keen on 
nature documentaries in the natural world and so forth. I will find the parts of the natural world that nobody likes and I will make them my thing. <laughs> and so spiders and reptiles and octopuses and all the, all the things that basically got bad press. I very, I just found myself immediately drawn to. And I, I mean, to, to me, they are enormously aesthetically pleasing things. And I'm well aware that that is not the majority opinion. <laughs> and yeah, which, which, yeah, which becomes something I can then use to kind of play games with my readers when I write. But yes, it's just, it's the thing I've always liked, but it is also a very useful literary device. Um, using, um, using insects and things as mirrors of the human, of human nature is a very, very well established, um, device, especially sort of central and East European literature um kafka and pelican and so forth and more than that like you say if the spiders are the one things that people really don't like more than anything else in the world spiders are the thing that people don't like so if i wanted to write a book which is basically about empathy for the other then it's kind of got to be spiders spiders are the big <laughs> challenge you can make people feel for spiders you can do anything i do know a few people after all of us have recommended these books. They get about halfway through Children of Time, and they're like, "I just can't, I just can't do it." It's the spiders. Really? <laughs> you know? Oh, interesting. There are some. I mean, I, I've also there, there have been a number of people who've come to me and said that it, it's genuinely helped them with arachnophobia. Which, yeah, you know, I won't pretend oh, that great. that was my my purpose in writing the book, but it's very nice to hear when I <laughs> when, it, when they when they said. Still, that yeah, that's really cool. I don't know. I mean, spiders. They're okay. My family asks me to kill the spiders when they see them, so that's pretty funny. Um, but can I put in a plea for maybe just evicting the spiders rather than killing them? Yeah, but. no. I mean, it depends on the size, really. Um, <laughs> uh, well, if they're that big, you can charge them rent. <sighs> <laughs> but what will they pay me in? I suppose. Beautiful webs. Webs are pretty. Um, I am curious, though. This is just. Out of curiosity, do you eat octopus? Not any. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I've never really eaten octopus, but in, honestly, in 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 UK cuisine, it's not common. Okay. Um, I've recently stopped eating squid, uh, which is, I I I I definitely went backward and forwards on because I love it, but I kind of feel it's not ethical because you know they're not maybe as bright as octopus, but they're still very bright. Um, so yeah, that is a that is a thing, and I'm I'm definitely sort of. D deciding that that's not a thing I do anymore. Yeah. So after reading, I I have been wrestling with that. So joking aside, really, it is kind of the intelligence and the interactions. Uh, yeah. Within... I mean, I, I I'm aware I'm very hypocritical, really, because pigs are extremely intelligent yes. animals, and I still yes. eat bacon, and therefore it is very much cherry picking what I feel. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't feel that I'm. I'm any great moral example on this front, but I've decided purely on a personal level that that not. Well, aren't we all a little hypocritical? <laughs> but thank you for that. I was very curious on that one. <laughs> and you, you were saying, Kathy, you've been really conflicted since, specifically since reading Children of Ruin, right? Well, yes, that and a conversation with a friend who had recently said she had watched the documentary. Um, my teacher. Um, and, and had said, you know, after watching that, I just, I just can't. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I watched maybe two episodes of that and that never crossed my mind, but it was reading the book and, and the, the way you wrote, uh, 
their interactions with one another. And as they were interacting with the rest of society and culture at that time, as you write it, was fascinating to me. And it's, again, it's that empathy part. So yes, I am also uh, selectively choosing what I'm going to eat because I too am a bacon lover. Um, (laughs) Uh, Adrian, you've already mentioned this uh, as far as empathy being a pretty core engine of the the children of time and and the other novels in that series. Um, A lot of times people talk about empathy by emphasizing deep down, we're all the same. There are so many similarities we have and you sort of take a different tack where you say, actually, what if we're radically different and that's good? And like, how do we, how do we be in relationship? How do we be in community? What, uh, I mean, just tell us a little bit about that. Where, where does that come from? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, to me, so diversity is, is one of those words that, that, you know, can get people arguing very quickly on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, diversity of viewpoint. I mean, we're actually, when I feel within science fiction, we're living in an, we're currently living in a bit of a golden era where we have a far more diverse range of voices within mm-hmm. the, within the genre than we've ever had before. And I, to me, it seems we also have a far more interesting, far higher quality range of writing than we've ever had before, and those things go together. I, it always seems to me that quite aside from the very cogent moral arguments you can make for diversity, it it's always a good. Um, more viewpoints means a wider range of thought. Um, a greater diversity of characters in a book makes for a more interesting book it's just one of those things that always seems to improve whatever it involves and mm. i think once you've been exposed to it then the old kind of uh what is it male pale and stale or whatever the um the phrase is <laughs> the, way that, the way the way that certainly science fiction very much used to be as far as its characters and indeed its um its proponents um you look back and think well, you know well, how much were we missing back then by mm having this very, very, um, this very, uh, unified viewpoint. And I mean, after all, we, we are, we are a genre that's supposed to be all about the imagination. And if your imagination can't go beyond the kind of the square jawed sort of white male what, hero incinerating the aliens because they look a bit funny, then, <laughs> you know, what, what, what are we doing? We're not really doing the, doing the, the scope of the genre justice. Can you talk a little more about that, though? Because I think I come I, I come into contact with folks who will still say, uh, why does it matter about the race, gender, ethnicity, culture of the author? Because it's the imagination that drives the creativity. Um, well, I mean, bear in mind, I'm, I'm right. I'm saying this very much as a... You know, a uh, an Eng- an English speaking white male author. So I'm I'm playing catch up to a certain extent on a lot of work that other people have done. But the best way the best way I can talk about this is in relation to I think it was an old radio show on the BBC. The idea was you got someone in, 
and you interviewed them about their career and then they suggested the next person who would come on the show. And what they found was if you have a man on, they will always give you another man. And if you had a woman on, it was generally about 50-50. And this, unless you actually actively start to think about diversity, this is generally where you'll go. Because of the society we've had... Sorry, there's words gone on with my computer there. Um, Because of the society that we're in, because of the sort of inbuilt dominances that we work with, um, when you're writing a book, what does this character look like? It'll look a bit like me me the you know um and unless you start to actively think about that sort of thing everything ends up very samey um as far as the import goes uh there was i cannot remember who was saying there's someone who had gone to see uh i believe it was rogue one the star wars film and in rogue one obviously you have the character cassian andor he's played by a hispanic actor um it's, i'm gonna say it's also one, one of my favorite star wars films uh myself that's but, all right they took their, they took their grand, they took their Hispanic grandfather to see it, and he was in tears when he came out of the cinema because I did not, you know, I've never seen a film where someone like us was in that role. And it, there is, and I've got to say, I mean, science fiction fantasy has definitely been guilty of this a lot of the uh, for a, a lot of its history. There is this idea that only certain people can be heroes, and in fantasy, it tends to express itself in well, you have a certain bloodline, or you must have a certain magic power, or you know, there is a certain thing that means you can be do hero things, and these other people can't. They are there to be saved or exterminated by the Dark Lord or something, but they are not there to be heroes. And I think we, it's a tremendously damaging kind of cultural artifact. It goes back to sort of Middle Ages romances where you have to be a prince. The only people who get to be heroes are princes and everyone else is kind of there as window dressing. And <laughs> quite aside from making stories that get very tediously samey very quickly, it wastes, you know, if, if you let that kind of idea take root so then it, so that it spreads into the real world, and obviously you know, stories influence how people expect the real world to work, then it wastes such a vast amount of, poten- of human potential because all those people who could be solving the problems and doing the things and kind of making the world better in various ways just get shunted to the side because they don't look like that very narrow band of this is what a hero looks like sort of um, fictional stereotype. Sorry, that was very rambly. I apologize. No, <laughs> love great. that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Children of Memory, um, which is the, the final installment in this trilogy. Um, Ooh, not, necess- not necessarily. There's probably going to be another one. The way the ideas are going, um, <laughs> hey! I, I mean, it's one of those. It's one of those publishing things. I never said it was the final book, but because it's book three, someone in the, um, Pat McMillan decided that's going to be the last book, and that's what it all went out on with the. Um, okay, the well, I'm. I was actually debating about even asking if if we could have another one, but I had it in my head that it was the last, so I didn't want to. I didn't want to put undue pressure. Anyway. That's wonderful news. Uh, so glad to hear that. So I remember shortly after Ruin was released, you tweeted that you had an idea for this one. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, you know, memory gets very existential. It's pressing on this, you know, do we all live in a simulation question? And I'm curious, was that like, was that the idea you were talking about? Or did that kind of come later as you fleshed out something else? Like what was, what was kind of the core? Cause this, in a way, in a, and not in a bad way, but this feels like a little bit of a departure from the the plot of the previous two books. 
So I'm really kind of curious, um, yeah, how, how this one kind of spiraled out. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 this is a difficult series to add books to. Um, this is my <laughs> this is my big ideas series. And whilst theoretically I could just churn out books with, oh yes, it's kind of the same as the last one, but this time it's wombats or opossums or you know some other animal. Um, and honestly, I, frankly, I would probably still just have a lot of fun doing that. But I feel that the bar has been set in a particular point by this by this series, and therefore it needs. A, it needs a certain amount of kind of philosophical content to get its teeth or its mandibles into. And so, um, the books have come, tend to come together quite slowly, uh, and they come together from multiple ideas. So, for example, Children of Ruin are just, well, I quite like to do octopuses. Octopuses are very fascinating. They are, they are, yeah, you know, sort of neurologically very interesting, very different to humans. I could have a lot of fun with that. But that on its own doesn't feel like enough. I would also quite like the idea of this kind of alien um, that kind of gets between the halves of the brain and kind of manufactures a surrogate human by almost... I mean, there, 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 there's, a, there's a phrase of the Chinese room with the idea that of, of just passing the signals backwards and forwards without necessarily understanding them, but still making that functioning engine. And it was the coming together of those two ideas that, that build Children of Ruin. And similarly, Children of Memory, some of the ideas were there to start with. And one of the things I'd wanted to do, not even necessarily in this series, was, but was very much write a book where what is, what is going on keeps shifting and wrong-footing the, re wrong the reader, because I love to read books like that. And I thought, well, can I do? Do I have it in me to actually produce a book like that? And that was that was what that's what children's memory is. And so again, it was when I would be, when I would have sent out that tweet, some of these elements would be in place, and then I would have basically just sort of sat on them and thought about them and tinkered around with them on paper until other bits started coming together and it started looking like a whole book. So similarly, at the moment, I've got what probably feels like about a third of a maybe a fourth book. It may not come together because the other parts might not be there, but I kind of know here is something I can write about and then I need at least one other thing and then I'll, you know, the, the extra third can just be, will just be the, you know, character interactions that I want to put in there, but it'll come together some way. That's great. That's great news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way, uh, like, the way you have the, you know, the Corvid race and again, a completely different, uh, I guess we'll just say evolutionary path from the spiders and from the octopus civilization. And then, yeah, this other, the mysterious thing happening on the planet, which I don't want to spoil for folks <laughs> who are, uh, who haven't, who haven't finished it yet or haven't gotten it yet. Uh, just, it was all, yeah, it was all so fun and surprising. And I loved the way the Corvids were even skeptical of their own sentience. You know, that was such a, I don't know, just such a, uh, and I mean this again in the best way, it's such a strange thing to be reading, you know, and to have these things that <laughs> had all of the markers of sentience, like, you know, uh, but yet we're saying like, oh, no, 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 we, we don't, we don't do that. Um, was that, was that, was that like a big idea that, that ended up fitting with the Corvids or was that something that grew out of you messing with? you know, ravens and crows and, and all of that. Well, the, the, so the big inspiration for that was not particularly ravens and crows. Cause I mean, honestly, they are, I mean, they, they, they were a species. I didn't feel I needed to resort to the, the kind of the nanovirus of the previous two books because they're, they're genuinely so 
so sort of sort of smart in a very relatable way already. But the so where that particular idea came out of is um, the other half of my degree as well as zoology was psychology. And one idea I was exposed to in psychology was the idea that maybe we aren't actually sentient in the way we think we are. There is certainly a theory to say that our decision-making does not work at the conscious level we believe it does, but that what our consciousness does is retcon reasons for why we do stuff. Um, it's a bit... Um, decision-making in ants' nests, uh, weirdly, is relevant to this one. So ants make decisions. Not they don't have The queen does not tell ants what to do. The queen has no real part in it. Um, worker ants individually... Uh, basically weigh in on a decision so let's say yeah where they are going where they're going to where they're going to forage for food and eventually a certain majority of the ants will be doing a certain thing and then all the ants will just flip to it and there is a suggestion that neurons in the brain might work in the same way so that you know that your decision on you know do i need to go and drink, get a drink of water and as various parts of your body are reporting oh i could quite use some water there will be a, this this consensus but when you go to get the drink of water you you will basically generate this idea of well obviously i wanted to go and get a drink of water because i am thirsty the sun is shining and so forth and you'll have all of this stuff as to why you did a thing but the in fact the decision was made before any of those thoughts really came to your conscious mind and that's what the ravens are working on and the, and the ravens in children's memory they not only do we not feel that we are we are sapient we don't necessarily think that you the humans and other creatures are necessarily sapient as well you may just think you are <laughs> and obviously you're dealing within this book with quite a wide range of artificial and natural and augmented intelligences and so the lines about well precisely what is thinking and what isn't which is yeah which is also key to what's going on in the book um is very blurred and i mean again the yeah we we have the stand the standard it's a bit like the spiders and spider light you have a standard paradigm for the way fiction approaches this and with intelligence is is this thing this computer this alien this whatever is this sapient and so the fun inversion you do is well actually are we sapient? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um adrian i was just going to mention that i uh I got in a fight with ChatGPT a few weeks ago <laughs> where it was saying it was sorry for giving me misinformation. And I was asking it and one, you know, at the same time, it'll tell you, it's like, I'm just a language learning model. You know, it's not my fault. I'm really sorry. And I said, in what sense are you sorry? And we started going through this whole thing where I was saying, like, <laughs> are you just manipulating me? Because you're clearly not sorry if you're just a language learning model. And finally, it was like, I mean, yes, basically. I am manipulating you. This is so humans will feel better about me being wrong about stuff. And I was like, oh, man, wow, that's so interesting. Hmm. Yeah, but I mean... It, it reminded me of your book, though. Well, yeah. Chad, this is... the Given that I was writing the book at least a year and a half before anyone had even heard right. of ChatGPT, right. it's, it's been this very peculiar coincidence that the way the ravens talk in the mm -hmm. book is so similar to the, the sort of thing that ChatGPT comes up with, up to and including these weird, slightly out of place sort of literary <laughs> literate references and things like that, um, which pay, which obviously I was in no way, you know, I'm, I'm not some grand prophet of science fiction. It's just a, a, a coincidence that's got me on a number of sort of blogs and podcasts and things, and I'll, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> a different kind of author would have just claimed grand prophecy right there. So that, that was pretty amazing, Adrian. Well done. 
We're glad um, that you're not claiming grand prophecy. <laughs> but I, th- I mean, it's fascinating because one of the things I reference in the first book is Eliza. And Eliza was an old, uh, very old sort of computer program that was designed to work as a kind of an artificial therapist. And it was very simple, but it was a kind of chat program in that way that it would take what you said and then it would formulate a response based on some keywords and what you had written to it. And it went to show that actually the Turing test was kind of bunk because you didn't need a very complicated computer program to make people Mm -hmm. believe they were interacting with a living entity that they got very, very defensive about when they were challenged. Um, And now we've obviously got things that are whole orders of magnitude more complicated, but... I, despite the complexity of the interactions, it's very much still the same thing. It's the thing that's ta- it. It is that that Chinese room model of the thing taking the things in. And I, I, I appreciate. I don't know that there must be a better term for that because I appreciate that's not a a particularly sensitive way of, of expressing the concept. But I don't know what the what a better way what a better way is. But it's it's that idea of something that is taking inputs in and using those to generate outputs. And as it gets feedback on the outputs it's made, it can make those outputs more and more appropriate to the inputs. But there's, there is nothing in the room that understands what's going on. And it's weirdly terrifying how complex these things can get and how human seeming they can get whilst having nothing at the core of them. Right, that they're not human at all. Yeah. Yes, which Unless I think that's what a human is. <laughs> well, this is the thing. We can then start make make us start to wonder. Well, actually, it, do we have you know in in inside that door that we have in our heads where our self is kept? Is there actually anything in that room? <laughs> We'd like to think of ourselves as the most complex, but I've appreciated, um, especially reading this series. That sounds like it may or may not be done, um, bringing us into the world of spiders, octopus, briefly ants, which I, our family has a affinity for, for some reason. Um, but when thinking about the cultures that you wrote in this series, human, spiders, octopus, Noden, corvid, AI, what do you, what was the most challenging? I think the octopus has almost broke me, to be honest, because mm-hmm. we do know quite a lot about them. And I mean, there's, um, I mean, I think I credited in the book, there's a book by Peter Godfrey Smith called uh, Other Minds, which was very much my my textbook for writing those sections. But we know how they work and we can see what very, very complex and certainly apparently intelligent behaviours it gives rise to. But at the same time, they're working on such a different level to us with their the cognition and their the decision-making being split around the limbs in the way that it appears to be. And bringing that to the page from the point of view of the octopus was really very difficult. Hmm. Hmm. It, it, felt, uh, it felt like a magic trick to me when I was reading it, to, to have the, the sort of the explanation, but then to see it being played out. I, 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 yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that it almost broke you, because even reading it, I was like, how did he do this? Like, <laughs> this is so, it, um, it's, it was so alien in the way that I, love things to be alien you know not the star trek alien which i'm a big star trek fan don't at me folks right but it's like star trek aliens are humans with some stuff on their head right like right and yeah they have green blood they're walking around right they're walking around in the same space interacting in the same way actually yeah and they're that they're that um you know everyone's really the same deep down kind of empathy and the octop the octopus culture was 
even uh, like like several degrees more alien than the spider culture, which I already thought mm. was so fun. Yeah, I mean it was such a such a fun experience. And then yeah, the octopus were so much weirder. Uh, I, I just I, I really marveled. And as much as I love Children of Time. I have now started recommending people read Children of Time to get to Children of Ruin, you know, because it's just even more, even more magical. And then again, I think this last book, not this next book, is so, uh, so fun and, and enjoyable in a completely different way as well. It was just, it was, it was terrific. Thank you. Yeah, Adrian. One of the things I love about your science fiction, it, it reminds me of when I was ki- a kid and reading science fiction for the first time, and felt like, oh, my mind is opening up in weird ways. Like that is not. I'm learning new things and I'm looking at the world differently and your books consistently do that. And I love it. It's, it's a lot harder as an adult to find fiction that does that. Um, so really, really thankful for your work and excited to read more. Um, Adrian, before we ask you how our listeners can stay in touch with you online, I'd love to know, um, uh, I'm still stuck on that conversation, part of our conversation around diversity of voices mm-hmm. in this genre, which I really appreciate. This is not a genre that I grew up reading in part because uh, I saw it as what the boys read. And um, as I grew up, it was a particular kind of boy <laughs> or young man <laughs> who was reading this, who hey, I just did not get come. along with. It's hey, true. Happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, and 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 because of the diversity, right? It for me, that was kind of the the block for me. So, are there any? Um, who is a diverse author in the genre that you would recommend? Okay, I mean, I would definitely recommend Aliette de Bodard, who is a uh, French Vietnamese. Uh, writer both her science fiction and her fantasy are absolutely superb um i read last year rf quang's uh babel which is a mind-blowingly good book and has also just some of the most interesting ideas i've come across in a fantasy book for a very long time um argady martin is very good becky chambers is very good uh Tardy thompson is excellent great there you Thank go. There's just, just a couple. Just a few. Sorry, I, I, I can never do just one recommendation. That will keep <laughs> no, you busy for like a week. Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, Adrian, uh, you know, Children of Ruin released earlier this year. I just saw that your final book in the Final Architects series is coming out in just a, a month and a half or so. Final yes, book, yes, yeah. indeed. Well, it says it's the final book. It says oh, that, that one. That one is definitely okay. yeah. That's the <laughs> trilogy. That one's. I might considerably write more in the setting, but that is a a genuine trilogy with one story across the three, and that's okay. that is done with Lords of Uncreation. So very excited that that uh, series is is horrifying in a completely different way. Um, those, <laughs> those those architects, I mean, they're yeah, they're if listeners if you haven't read that series, also very worth picking up. Uh, if our listeners want to follow you online, where do you like to send people to keep up with what you're doing? So the uh, the anchor point is uh, adrianchaikovsky.com um, because social media is all over the place at the moment. I am on Twitter and Mastodon at, at aptshadow, A-P-T-S-H-A-D-O-W. And Lord knows where we're all going to be in two or three months' time. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> really? It's true. Well, uh, 
Friends, our guest today has been Adrian Chachovsky. We've been talking primarily about his Children of Time series, the most recent Children of Memory has just released. Uh, Adrian has, I don't even know how, I didn't even count how many other series you have, but they're all terrific. He's a wonderful author. Uh, so check out uh, his website. Uh, and I know many of you listeners have already been reading this series, so please make sure you reach out and let us know what you think of them. Uh, and make sure you connect with Adrian. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such an honor to have you on. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, We will be back next week with our regularly scheduled episode. Until then, take care of yourselves. Be kind to spiders. Maybe think about not ordering that octopus. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week.